I begin with a riddle this morning, a conundrum. If you have five potatoes and had to divide them equally between three people, what would you do? Five potatoes. You have to divide them equally between three people. What would you do? Answer? Mash them first. Now, my riddle was a little misleading. Because when I used the word divide, it placed in your mind the concept of of having a knife. And you have to slice, dice, chop these potatoes into something where you'll be able to divide each of them equally into three parts. What would have happened if my riddle read read this way? If you had five potatoes and you had to serve them to three people, what would you do first? I dare say that you probably would come up with an answer much more quickly because the, 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 the verb there, divide versus serve, help you frame an answer. This morning we're looking at a text of Scripture where there is a riddle, there is a conundrum, and it really doesn't matter what verbs we might use we're still up against something that is unknown. Not completely understood. Here's the question. Here's the riddle. How can God exercise sovereign control over all things, yet... Hold man responsible for his choices. We're in this glorious chapter of John's Gospel, the 10th chapter, one of my favorites in the entire Bible. I love this chapter because of of the glorious pictures we have here of the shepherd with his sheep. Two weeks ago, as we began this, ch- this chapter, we, we saw these words in verse 7 where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And we learned there that in order to get access to God's people, if, if we are to, to, to speak, to address, to serve God's people in a God-honoring way, we have to go through Jesus. In other words... Anything that we would do or say has to be consistent with what he's already revealed in his word. Last week we looked at that, that verse, uh, verse 11, uh, repeated in verse 14, where Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. Good in the sense that he's, he's not there to grab, to take for himself. He's there to give. And he gives voluntarily, he gives freely, he gives completely. He gives of himself for his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. 
He gives it all for their benefit. He's not looking to gain. He's looking to give. This morning we look at a, a, another glorious uh, paragraph, a wonderful um, interaction that Jesus has with, with, uh, with a group of Jews. Um, and and, and in this section, we're going we're gonna to find that Jesus draws a very firm and a very bold line between those who are and those who are not his sheep. There's some difficulty here. And it will take all of our mental ability and more to be able to wrap our mind around what Jesus says exactly. Now, the interesting thing to me um, that we were going we to find is in verses 25 and following. But um, verses 19 through 24 give us some context. And they provide us with some, some helpful um, understandings of, of why Jesus says what he says. So let's read the entirety of our text. And then we'll begin with that context. Beginning verse 19, follow along with me, please. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathering around him were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The context. Verse 19. There's a division, again, among the Jews over Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? Well, there's some that was said he has a demon and or is insane. Now that may be a double-barreled accusation. Then again, it might be just a single shot to say that he's out of his mind and a demon is in his mind. Doesn't really matter. These people were not having 
any, anything with, with what Jesus was, was putting down. He want, they wanted nothing to do with it. It made no sense to them that Jesus was this fulfillment of the Davidic shepherd. What? That's preposterous. This guy? Are you kidding me? No way. There were others that were uh, a, a little bit more reflective, intellectually honest. And they said, no, wait a minute. Verse 21. These are not the sayings of a demon-possessed person. These, these are not the sayings of so, some guy who's out of his mind. Wait a minute. There, there, there's there's got to be another answer here. End of verse 21. A, a, a demon cannot open the eyes of a blind man. Can't do it. You remember when we were in chapter 9. Jesus meets up with a man who was born blind. Born blind. He may not have had any eyes. He may not have had any... Um, uh, 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 retina thing that goes to his brain. Okay, nurse, what is it? Optic nerve. Okay, he may not have had that. He may not have had um, that that necessary component in his brain to recognize, translate, understand, make sense of a visual image. We don't know what it was. But when Jesus met this man, he healed him instantly. There was that eyeball that was there, that functioned. There was the optic nerve that functioned. There was the brain that functioned. All the pieces came together, and that man saw instantly. He saw. Now, we, when we were in chapter 9, we, 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 we looked at these passages of Scripture. Exodus 4, Psalm 146. Only God opens the eyes. Only God makes the ear. Isaiah 59. And only Messiah is the one who would perform it. This was Jesus' calling card. When this man, this man born blind from birth, when this man saw... The entire world knows there is something going on here. Only God gives sight. Messiah is the one who would do it. Jesus did it. Who is Jesus? Well, he can't be a demon-possessed man. He can't be insane. Yet there was this division. Verse 24. So they gathered around Jesus. That, 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 uh, that translation, gathered around, in the New American Standard test, text is, is insipid. It's, 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 it's weak, it's anemic. It's, it's um, better to translate that, surrounded or encircled. There is a hostile intent 
with this crowd gathering around Jesus. They're not exactly sure who he is. And they are demanding, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Make it public. Make it open. Make it your declaration right here, right now. Jesus, we're talking to you. It's almost like a pack of wolves surrounding their prey, demanding an answer. What will Jesus say? Verse 25 is the beginning of his answer. But I'm not done with my introduction. So we can't go to verse 25 quite yet. There's one other piece that we need to look at that you'll find in verses 22 and 23. Look at this with me again. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The portico of Solomon is a covered colonnade. Um, Wintertime in Israel is rainy season. So out of the rain, during the winter, when it is darkest, during the Feast of Dedication, Jesus spoke these words. What was the Feast of Dedication all about? Let me take you back in history. Toward the end of the second century BC, there was a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who loved everything Greek. The Greek word for Greek, Hellenica, um, is, is, is where we, we get the word Hellenization. Hellenica, Hellenization. Hellenization, Hellenization is, is the process by which um, uh, we make everything Greek. And Antiochus Epiphanes was all about this in 167 BC. He took over Jerusalem, walked in and grabbed that city, grabbed the nation by the neck, and demanded that the Jews give up their Judaism for the worship of the Greek pantheon. All of the Greek goddess, all of the Greek uh, gods were um, to replace Yahweh. Antiochus Epiphanes demanded that the Jews give up their Bibles. He destroyed every copy of Torah that he could find. It was illegal to read from um, or speak from the Old Testament. He wanted to make these people forget their Judaism. Further, he um, forbade circumcision, that sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If a mother was caught having circumcised her infant baby, she was crucified with her children dangling from her neck. He forbade the practice of the Sabbath, a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. But worst of all, in the eyes of the Jews, 
Antiochus Epiphanes walked into the temple, slaughtered a pig, offered that pig on the altar of God, and then erected a statue to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. This act was something that the prophet Daniel prophesied would take place, calling it the abomination of desolation. During that period of time, the Jews became quite skilled at guerrilla warfare. Finally, in 164 B.C., there was enough energy and enough manpower and enough arms led by Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. Judas the Hammer, for the Jews to overthrow their Syrian oppressor. The first thing they did was cleanse the temple and rededicate the temple. Hence, the feast of the dedication, which was an eight-day feast, subsequently uh, practiced by the Jews every year, even to this day. We call it the Feast of Hanukkah, Festival of Lights. When God instructed Moses how to build the furniture for the tabernacle and subsequently the temple, the golden lampstand was a seven-candle menorah. After um, the uh, rededication of the temple, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll find in, in many Jewish homes uh, a nine-candled menorah with the middle candle elevated, higher than the other eight. That, that, that ninth candle, the higher one, is, is the candle to light the other eight. The eight uh, represent the eight days of that celebration. It took place in the wintertime, at the winter solstice, the darkest time of the year. And it was then that light was brought to the Jewish people as they were freed from their tyranny. And here, Jesus stands among them. He who is the light of the world. Bringing, bringing light, bringing understanding, bringing hope to the people. And here they are standing around him clamoring, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Point number one. Responsibility for unbelief. Well, here's what Jesus says to this crowd gathering around him, surrounding him, circling him, looking to take him out. Jesus says, I told you, and you did not believe. I told you who I am, and you don't believe me. 
Now, Jesus is in no way ashamed of his identity, and he is in no way trying to keep hidden who he really is. To the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, Jesus said, or Jesus, uh, the, the woman Samar- Samaritan woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, John inserts. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Pretty clear. To the man healed from his blindness from birth. Jesus asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The the formerly blind man answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And this man, Scripture says, worshipped Jesus. And Jesus accepted that worship. Prior to his execution, Jesus' execution, Pilate asked, this is in John 18, are you the king of the Jews? And without Jesus hesitating at all, he said, yes, you say correctly that I am a king. In response to Jesus' question to his men, uh, who do you say that I am? Jesus, or rather, uh, Simon Barjona uh, answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. The Sanhedrin, the the Jewish Supreme Court, also demanded that Jesus publicly and openly declare who he was. And they said to him, this is Luke 22, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe So then they asked, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, yes, I am. He made it clear. He used the divine title of Son of Man, the divine title of Son of God, and he said, I'm the guy. It was with that name, that title, Christ, or in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, that Jesus shied away from publicly and openly for this reason. That title, that understanding of the Messiah was so politically charged that the Jews pushed out of their understanding of that word every... um, Uh, spiritual or eternal deed that Jesus would do. In the Jewish mind in the first century, Messiah was was a political deliverer. Period. End of statement. And Jesus didn't use that term openly and publicly because of that misunderstanding. Was he Messiah? Was he the Christ? (laughs) Absolutely. Mm, But he didn't use that word openly and publicly 
So when Jesus said, verse 25, I told you, was he saying, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's what they were wondering. Was, was he saying, I already told you that I was the Christ? Well, to some, privately, he had, yes. But openly, publicly, no. Yet he told them who he was in other ways. Primarily, he says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, this is my calling card. This is how you know who I am. Who is it that is able to heal a blind man's eyes? Only God is able to, to do that kind of work specifically through Messiah, it was obvious. But they wouldn't believe it. Did they have plenty of opportunity to understand who Jesus was? I, I mean, were there enough miracles? All you need is one. And yet every Jesus lived. Every day, Jesus was performing miracles to authenticate, verify, prove who he was. So it was unmistakable. And the Jews knew what he was saying. Look with me at Chapter 5. Remember this healing that Jesus did of a man um, lame for the last 38 years of his life? And Jesus healed this man? In verse 17 of John chapter 5, Jesus is talking with the, the, the Jews that were, were there observing this miraculous deed and they said and jesus says my father is working until now and i myself am working they knew exactly what jesus was saying he was equating himself and his work with that of the father verse 18 for this reason therefore the jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Is there any question in the minds of these Jews who Jesus was? No, not at all. They knew exactly what he was putting down. John chapter 8. End of that chapter. Jesus makes this glorious statement, truly, truly, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And Jesus is claiming that special name, the name Yahweh, given by God to Moses. Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews exactly what he was putting down verse 59 
They picked up stones, therefore, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were looking to kill him for blasphemy. Now, it's not blasphemy if it's a true statement. But in their minds, Jesus was uttering blasphemy, claiming to be God. These people were without excuse. Verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you did not believe. Verse 26 opens, and you did not believe. You did not believe. You did not believe. He puts the responsibility fully on their shoulders. These Jews had to ample opportunity to understand who Jesus is exactly, but they chose not to pay attention, not to listen, not to believe. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. And even though the truth is evident, it's clear, it's plain, it's so obvious. And yet they suppress that truth. They push it away. They deny it. They excuse it. They, they do all kinds of machinations in order to get rid of the truth. They don't believe. And that is their choice. Their responsibility. Second page of your notes. When we come to my second point here, verse 26, we, we find that there's a, a, a marked difference. Verse 25 is from a human point of view. Verse 26 is from a heavenly point of view. And verse 26 is where we have our riddle, our problem. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now look at that verse carefully. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You see that there's two phrases in that verse, don't you? The first, you do not believe. Second, you are not of my sheep. Note, please note, Jesus does not say this. He does not say what I'm going to say. He does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He does not say that. But is that a true statement? Yeah. They don't believe. They are not God's 
sheep. They are not God's sheep because they don't believe. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. This is written from a human point of view. That statement that Jesus does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe, that would be a true statement. But Jesus is giving us more information. He is giving us divine revelation. He is giving us something that's causing our mind even right now to swirl and try to figure out what is the answer to this riddle? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The reason why you don't believe? You don't belong to me. Now this is not a new idea in John's Gospel. If you look over with me at chapter 6, just a couple pages away, Chapter 40, uh, sorry, verse 44 of chapter 6. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is, you, you, the, the unsafe person does not have the ability to come to the Father unless the Father, or come to Christ unless the Father draws him. He says the same thing in verse 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. There was something that happened in Adam that affects all of mankind. We lost our ability to properly respond to God in a way that pleases him. Oh, we might think we are pleasing God by the things that we do. But as Isaiah said, our, um, our, our, our works of righteousness are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. We're looking at things from a divine point of view. And, and Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we, we are spiritually dead. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We, we, we are in such a, a, um, a, such a state that we are completely unresponsive to the things of God. We are depending upon God. We, he, he must act. He must bring to life our spiritual souls. If he doesn't take out this stony heart that doesn't beat anymore... And replace it with a heart that does, a heart of flesh, as the prophet says. We are dead, eternally lost. The prophet uh, Jeremiah asks this penetrating rhetorical question. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? then you can also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Does the Ethiopian have the ability to change the color of his skin? 
Can a leopard change the pattern on his fur? Of course not. So he says, well then, um, you also have the same ability to do good while being accustomed to doing evil. No. We are people that are selfish. We do things for our own advantage, for our own benefit, our own gain. We look to get. Every area of our life has been stained with sin in this way. I would refer you to uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we looked at in our first hour this morning. Back to our text. These who are my sheep, as Jesus refers to them, are people that are labeled um, by certain words in the New Testament. And labeled this way in, in many, many verses. Uh, the biblical writers use the word chosen, elect, called, predestined. He uses these, these, this kind of language, the New Testament writers in particular, um, they use this kind of lang- language of those people who have been ordained of God to be one of his sheep. Now again, we're looking at this from a heavenly point of view. When the scriptures say that we have been called, uh, ordained, elected, um, he's talking about specific individual people whose specific and individual names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. You and I will never see that book. But those who are saved, their names are written therein. Listen, I put these, these verses that I'm going to read to you, I put them in your notes. You can go back and listen, look, at, look them up later. But I want you just to listen to, to the fullness of this idea that God identifies his own sheep. Listen. Ephesians 1, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Revelation 13, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 2 Timothy 1, our Lord saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Thessalonians 2. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by our Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. 
when a group of Jews um, rejected Christ, we find this response in Acts chapter 13. When, when the Gentiles heard this, that is that the gospel wasn't exclusively for Jews, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, listen. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And here I am living with this conundrum in my head. There are so many more verses that we could read that say the same thing. The evidence is overwhelming that God chooses he calls he appoints he elects he predestines certain individuals unto faith and he gives them faith scripture says that he gives them repentance as a gift When we say that God is absolutely sovereign, we say that he is large and in charge in all things. How is it that that is true while at the same time man is completely responsible for his choices? can't fully bring those two together. And yet, because our faith is built on what, we what God has revealed in Holy Scripture, we must hold intention even though there is some pulsing in our mind trying to figure this thing out. We must hold an intention and affirm from a human point of view, I'm responsible. From a heavenly point of view, God is sovereign. Moving toward point number three, I actually should have put this sub-point in point number three. If you look with me over at 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, um, in, the, in the first paragraph here, after the um, opening salutation, uh, Peter talks about um, our faith, our moral excellence, our spiritual knowledge, our self-control, our perseverance, our godliness, uh, brotherly kindness. Having talked about all of these things in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter, Peter is saying um, uh, all, all of these wonderful virtues, um, faith, moral excellence, spiritual knowledge, self-control, perseverance, love, brotherly kindness, all of these virtues are evidence that I have been chosen by God. 
Back to our text. Verse 27. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This, this is where we can, we, we, can, we can put the riddle aside. How, how do we marry uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility together? Well, um, I, I, I can, I, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to attempt to pull this all together. But bottom line, it is not going to be completely, exhaustively satisfying. But I can put that intellectual and spiritual exercise uh, aside for just a moment and say something so simple that a six-year-old could understand it. This is how you know if you're one of God's sheep. It's this simple, really. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow Hear and heed. Trust and obey. I don't have to worry about the Lamb's book of life. I affirm it because I read it here in Scripture. I know it's there. I know what's in it. I don't know if my name is there. I can put that out of my mind. I don't have to worry about that. All I have to do and and concern myself is, hmm, Am I heeding and hearing the word of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse, uh, verse 5. Paul asks, um, or, or he, he makes a statement at the end of that letter, test yourselves to see if you are in, your, in the faith. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Am I listening to the word of truth? Am I listening to the words of Christ? Now hopefully this preacher uh, among any, every, all the others that you will hear are, 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 are those who are mirroring the text of Scripture and the voice of Christ. It is my earnest hope that the words you hear from me are the words of Christ. Though I must quickly admit and admonish you, I, I am a, a human being and you must carefully examine all that I say according to Scripture. You may hear from a preacher or teacher of Scripture the voice of Christ. You certainly have it here in the Scriptures. Are you hearing it? And are you following Him? Are you heeding what you are hearing. That's the simple test. Jesus said, John 14, if you love me, if you claim to be my sheep, you will keep my commandments. Hear and heed, trust and obey. Uh, That's it, baby. That's evidence of true faith. Point number four, benefits of true faith. 
I, I want you to notice, notice this, uh, this sing-song kind of uh, interaction that Jesus says between the sheep and the shepherd. Verse 27, the sheep hear, the shepherd knows. End of verse 27, the sheep follow, beginning of verse 28, the shepherd gives. The shepherd knows his sheep, and he gives eternal life to his sheep. Now, we've talked about this before. This is a theme that's popped up in John's gospel many times. It will continue to pop up. When John talks about eternal life, he's not talking exclusively about a, 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 a quantity of life. He's talking about a quality of life, life with the Savior that starts now. This, 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 this eternal life is, is something that's going on for believers right now. It doesn't happen only when you die. It's a quality of life with our Savior. He knows us, and He gives us the best of heaven's benefits. He, know, he, 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 uh, he, he gives us two promises here. I want you to see them. They will never perish, verse 28, and no one will snatch them out of Christ's hand. When he says no one is, is, is going to perish here, his, none of his sheep are going to perish, he's, he's saying there's not going to be any separation between me and my sheep. I am not going to abandon my sheep in any way. Oh, what a glorious picture. Most of you know I come from a broken home, and I remember just crying my eyes out as my family disintegrated. I was in junior high. Right about that time is when I came to know the Lord. <laughs> Ooh, didn't expect that. And the verse that was so precious to me was from Hebrews chapter 13. When I felt abandoned by my own family, I read this. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Oh, oh, that was, that was my life. Uh, nothing was going to separate me from my Lord. I remember with such great fondness um, reading these words uh, Similarly, from, uh, from Romans chapter 8, verse um, 35, Paul asks the question rhetorically, who, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us, for I am 
convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in create, all created earth will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will not be separated from our Lord. We will never perish. We will never be snatched away. Eternally protected by the Father. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. And find Psalm 121. Psalm 121. When you get there, uh, before the text begins in verse 1, you'll notice that it says, this is one of the songs of ascents. Now, the songs of ascents were, were those psalms, those songs that were sung by the pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the Holy Land and you've gone to Jerusalem, if you approach from the east, you approach from the west, you're going uphill, baby. Uphill, uphill, uphill. And you are looking up. Ah, with that kind of context in mind. This song, this psalm reads this way. I lift up my eyes to the mountains where I'm headed. From where shall my help come? Where are we going? Jerusalem. What's there? The temple. What's the temple? A a, a picture of the presence of God. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where, from whence come my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your coming out You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. Who's the keeper? Who is this protector? Is it the Father or is it the Son? Answer, yes. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We had an interesting discussion right before uh, our worship began this morning about what, 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 is, what is oneness? In what sense is Jesus one with the Father. Are we talking about one person? No. The word one is neuter. It's not masculine. It's not talking about a person. Well, the Jehovah Witnesses, who are not Trinitarian, not Christian, will will say, well, this refers to Jesus and the Father being one in mission. 
one in purpose. After all, the word one is neuter. No. It is not... Um, it, it, is, it, it is not inaccurate to say that God the Father and God the Son are one in mission or one in purpose. But it's incomplete in this context. And because it is incomplete, it is wrong. Because Jesus and the Father are of the same stuff, of the same essence. There is one being in two persons. So, our time is up. I give you um, just a series of, of, of questions here. Who is it that can overcome death for himself and promise that to others? Who is it that can give sight to someone born blind? Who is it that justly, rightly receives worship? Is there any question who Jesus really is? He is none other than God in human flesh. Now, my friends, I, 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 I encourage you one more time um, not to spend a, a, a good bit of time, any time, wondering, fretting over whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I've had many conversations with many people over, over the years who were genuinely worried and concerned that they didn't know and they weren't sure. Well, I, I, I understand the, the, uh, the, the need for certainty and the desire for that kind of security. That's, uh, um, I, I understand that. You can simply put yourself to the test this way. Am I hearing the voice of Christ and am I following him? really is that simple. Doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Doesn't mean that I'm going to do that perfectly. I will stumble and I will fall and, 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 and I will be that sheep that is cast, that is on my back with my four legs dangling in the air, not wondering how am I going to get out of this problem. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, takes care of our deepest needs. We can trust him. Let's pray. Our blessed God, I thank you for the clarity of Scripture. I thank you for this <laughs> glorious picture of Jesus' protection, his watch care, his, his love, his his faithfulness to his flock. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit of God would dwell right here among us right now. We know that the work of the Spirit 
in the days of Jesus are the same as in our day now. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts us of God's coming justice, judgment. And we find that the, 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 the path of escape from that anticipated judgment is only through Christ. It is only through Christ that we gain uh, that, that cloak of righteousness whereby we can stand in the presence of a holy God. Jesus is our only hope. Would you impress upon us the glory, the majesty, the splendor of Christ? Make His presence so so sweet, so winsome, that as you change out this stony heart of us and place within us a a heart of, of flesh, draw us close to yourself, we pray, that we might live unto your glory.